Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. That's Isaiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 11. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty, who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word... They have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and, looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you, as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
Oh, well, thank you to the band. What great words. Aren't you looking forward to singing that together a little bit later on in the service? What great truths to be hearing and to be sharing together. Uh, Well, uh, good evening again. And um, uh, if you'd like to turn back to Isaiah 8 uh, in your Bibles, uh, wherever you uh, tuck them away, we're going to be looking at that together for the next few minutes. We're um, We're carrying on our series, uh, looking together at some of the great Old Testament promises about the Lord Jesus Christ from the book of Isaiah. And and we're trying together to see a little bit of how they fit in their original context and how quite they are pointing us forward to Jesus from all the years previously that they were written. And uh, so if you found that, let uh, let me pray for us and then we can dig in to that passage together. And so let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that this evening you would please show us more of Jesus Christ. Please teach us to trust him more and to build our whole lives on the truths of his word. Please help me to speak faithfully and help us to all hear with faith in his name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, the British ambassador to Washington received a call from a journalist at the Washington Daily Post asking what he wanted for Christmas. And um, he didn't know the man that well, and he didn't want to appear greedy or ask for too much. But he was touched by the offer. And, uh, and so he replied, oh, thank you very much. I'd love, um, I'd love some sugared fruits. And um, a few days later... Uh, he opened up the newspaper and came across this article. Uh, We've asked a few of the local ambassadors what they want for Christmas. Uh, The Russian ambassador said world peace. Uh, The German ambassador said an end to poverty forever. Uh, The French ambassador said that he would want to wipe out third world debt. And the British ambassador would like some sugared fruits. And it is enough to make you wonder who would want to be a diplomat after that sort of thing. Um, And uh, I don't know if you've started to think about your Christmas list yet. Maybe that joke's a bit premature for you. But I guess you don't have to be an ambassador or a public figure to relate to the desire for a better world. You know, if I could give you world peace for your lifetime, what wouldn't you give for that? You know, at this time of year, there's, there's so much to be thankful for, so much that's joyful and beautiful and good, but, but there's also a lot in our world that is very gloomy and dark. And I was driving home from a meeting in Manchester on Friday when the news broke over the radio of another terrorist attack in London. And there was very little information at that point, but I could already imagine the headlines and the story as it unfolded over the radio. Because, I don't know about you, but my lifetime's been punctuated by the drip, drip, drip of terrorist atrocities, big and small. And what wouldn't you give for a better world? Two other stats I heard this week. Do you know that more people were killed in conflicts since 1945 than in all of human history before that date that we know about? Here's another one I read this week. 
At, at the moment, in 2019, the UN estimates that there are 65.6 million people who have been forcibly displaced from their homes because of persecution, conflict, or, or violence. 65.6 million refugees. And compare that to the population of Britain, or something like that. And I don't know your personal situation this evening, whether you bounce in here full of joy and wonder, looking forward to Christmas already, or whether you're here and your personal circumstances feel very gloomy indeed. But what wouldn't you give for a better world, for peace in our lifetimes? And the question for us this evening is very simple. Where will we look for the world that we long for? You know, with an election coming up in just a week and a half, I don't know about you, but I get a flyer through my door just about every day, it feels like, from another politician promising the better country that I long for, promising to fix the things that are broken. And it's a big issue in this uh, election campaign, isn't it? Who do you trust? Who can deliver the better vision that we want? And the question of Isaiah 8 and 9 is very simply that one. Who will you trust to deliver the world that we want, the world that we long for? Now, you see, the situation for God's people in Isaiah 8 and 9 was very much one of gloom and anguish. Did you pick that up during the reading, the references to darkness, to gloom, to anxiety? Uh, the threat of war stood just around the corner for God's people. Uh, the king had spent a fortune on protection from a nation called Assyria and had very little to show for it because he'd just been told by God that Assyria themselves would sweep through the land of um, Judah and destroy it. And in this context of gloom and anguish and anxiety, God's people were looking to anyone other than God to protect them and give them hope. And so here in Isaiah 8 verse 11, the Lord speaks to Isaiah with some urgency and says, don't go the way of the people. Don't follow the crowd. Be different. Trust the Lord. Look at verse 11 of chapter 8 with me for a minute. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do you see, this, um, this passage, it's not going to be the sort of passage that, that beats us up for our failings. There are some, some, um, some negative things in here, but they're by way of warning. It's an urgent warning. Don't go the way of a faithless people, says God. And that's our first heading this evening. If you're a scribbler, if you're a note taker, don't go the way of a faithless people. The Lord spoke to me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Uh, three things we see about their way. Uh, the people fear everything other than God. The people fear everything other than God. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you're to regard as holy. He's the one you're to fear. He's the one you're to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. Do you see that? A sanctuary, a place that keeps you safe. 
The people in Isaiah's day were terrified by their circumstances, terrified by the threat of invading armies, terrified by the gloom they saw in the world around them. And the Lord appeals urgently to Isaiah and says, don't fear your circumstances. Don't fear what the people fear. Remember who I am and fear me. And we certainly live in an anxious time, don't we? Why is there so much heat in the debates around the election or around Brexit? Well, there's a real sense of fear and anger about what might happen if we get the wrong outcome, whatever you think the wrong outcome is. Uh, We live in an age of ever-growing anxiety, and at one level we want to say yes, because the world is a scary place. But here is one of the big themes of the Bible, that question, who do you fear most? Whose approval do you crave? If I can put it negatively, whose disapproval are are you frightened of? It's a question Jesus asks in Luke 12. Uh, In Luke 12, Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry unduly about money and food and clothes. No, seek God's kingdom and you can trust him to provide for you. Uh, Again, uh, the apostle Peter quotes from here in Isaiah um, uh, 8.13 in, um, in his first letter in 1 Peter 3 and says, if someone opposes you for speaking up as a Christian, do it anyway. Uh, Do it with gentleness and respect, he says, but do it anyway because it's Christ's opinion of you that really matters. And you see the issue, God's people, who do we fear? Do, Do we fear everything other than what God thinks of us? Or does the Lord and his opinion weigh heavy with us? You know, it's a hard feeling, isn't it, being the only believer in your class or your office or your family Isaiah was one of only a few true believers left in a whole nation. And the Lord says to him, remember who I am and fear me. See, this is what faith does. It looks beyond our circumstances to the God who's in control of the world and says, I will trust him in a broken and dark world. But then we see that this people will believe anything other than God's word. Uh, Look at verse 19 with me for a moment. Uh, When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? See, it's a remarkable thought, isn't it? The people of God have said that they would rather hear from anyone else other than God. They don't really care what God says about the situation. And so without any sense of irony, they're going to go to Isaiah, God's spokesman, and they're going to say, could you, um, could you look in a crystal ball for me? Could you consult the spirits of the dead and get them to tell you a bit about what's going to happen in the future? You see, they don't trust God, but they still want a word from outside of themselves to tell them what's going to happen. Uh, You know, the great great sort of modernist, secular thinkers of our age, you know, a hundred years ago, thinkers like Nietzsche predicted the end of all religion 
by the end of the 20th century. You know, from their point of view, they saw it as a rationalist, atheist utopia, but it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. Today, there are, there are a few hardened atheists, but, but mainly the nominal Christianity of Britain has been replaced by, by superstition and sort of vague personal spirituality, hasn't it? Uh, the other day, uh, I was driving somewhere. I went past two different pubs that were offering a psychic night where you could come along and have your fortune told. Uh, I did a bit of Googling about local mediums in Sheffield, and uh, I look forward to explaining that part of my internet history to uh, my family at some point. But um, apparently you can book fun fortune tellers for your, uh, for your New Year's party who guarantee that they'll provide your party guests with a positive and uplifting reading from the tarot cards to ensure that they can enjoy their evening. And it's farcical, isn't it? It's farcical. And yet here are people looking for answers outside of themselves. And the shock in Isaiah 8 is that the people looking are God's people. It's not people outside, it's God's people who are saying to Isaiah, we want a message from somewhere else. They'll listen to anything other than God's word. And of course, we see that reality around us in the church as well, don't we? A survey from last year of Christian believers in the UK, 40% of Christians agreed with the statement that the Bible is accurate, 40%. Only 61% believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And 50% of professing Christians believed that Jesus was a being created by God and not God himself. And the Lord says to Isaiah with some urgency, don't go the way of a people who fear everything other than God and will listen to anyone other than God. No, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. Why ask the spirits of the dead when you can inquire of the living God? Don't drift into the vague platitudes and fuzzy theology. In the face of our gloomy world, trust the Lord and his word. Because you see, the Lord says to Isaiah, it is a dangerous path the path of walking away from God. Uh, Have a look at verse 14 with me again. He'll be a sanctuary, but for both houses of Israel, he'll be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. Do you see, what, what God is saying is that our experience of God is very largely dictated by how we respond to him. If we stop listening to God and walk away from him, looking for hope and safety somewhere else, well, there is real danger there. Uh, I've, I've mentioned uh, this before, but uh, I, uh, I have an accountant who... Um, who's uh, taken pity on me and still works with me despite how little money I have. But um, I don't think about my accountant very much, to be honest. Uh, we talk about, about once a year 
you know, just about the time you need to sort out your tax return. To be honest, months go by, and I hardly ever think about my accountant. It's really not a big player in my life. And that, that's kind of all right when it's your accountant, isn't it? Because they don't have to be a big player in your life. But the story would be very different if I said the same about my wife, Jess. You know, I only think about her once a year. Uh, you know, days go by. I only talk to her once a year. Days go by. I hardly think about her. Don't don't really give that much thought to her. She's not a big player in my life. It's a very different story, that, isn't it? And you see, the God who made us, who knows us and loves us and gives us everything, well, he's more like a wife than an accountant, if I can put it like that. He's someone who we owe everything to, who is intimately involved in every part of our lives. And, And if we choose to ignore him and go the way of the crowd... Well, the Bible says he will take it infinitely seriously. Uh, The picture in verse 20 is of darkness and distress being cut off from God's presence to bless us, to care for us forever, experiencing only his justice and judgment. And remember, the Lord isn't beating us up with these words. He's warning us. This is a loving warning to say, don't go the way of this people. Stick with trusting God because nothing good lies down the path of other hopes and other voices. But there are plenty of people who will tell you to take your relationship with Jesus just a little bit less seriously. There are are other things in life. Focus on them. Okay to have a bit of religion, but, but not too much. And here the Lord shows us the great danger of that approach, the danger of nominal faith, that it's a road that leads to darkness and gloom. And yet there's great hope in the promises of these verses. Because you see, the Lord says, don't go that way, but instead trust God and his promises. So our second point, the second road to go down, trust God and his promises. Uh, Verse 16, Isaiah Isaiah says, bind up the testimony, seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. And chapter 9, those first few verses, uh, the, the first seven verses, they're full of the richest reasons imaginable to keep trusting this God and going his way, even as the crowd turn away from him. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. I don't know if anyone else has had a power cut this weekend. Around 100 homes in Fullwood have had a power cut. And um, somehow our our house always seems to be one of the ones. I don't know know, whether we're sort of living under a power line or something like that. But um, uh, I I tell you what, the, um, the moment of great joy in our household... When the lights came back on, and this is crucial in, uh, on the 1st of December, the, the heating came back on, 
and suddenly great joy. And here, here is the promise of a better world. Here the, the gloom, the darkness, the anxiety, it's replaced three times in verse three by joy, joy. The Lord promises a perfect world that will fix everything that is broken with the world that we live in, a world where, verse five, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Uh, do you know, in um, uh, World War I, I was reading this week, the British alone issued 46,972,000 pairs of army boots. But the day will come when the boots which once shook the earth will fall silent and never again will we catch sight of a blood-soaked uniform or a blood-soaked victim on the news. And it'll be quite a bonfire according to this promise. Uh, I can imagine it won't just be the boots, but every weapon and every piece of military hardware in the world thrown on this fire. It's estimated that there are nine, uh, 280 million guns in the USA alone, some half a million armored vehicles around the world, and who knows how many suicide vests, and all of them just fuel for the fire, the Lord says. And so there'll be no more breaking news of violence or terrorist attacks, no more debates about proportional response or how these things have happened, because the Lord says there'll be no more violence or war, but only peace. And finally, it will be the world we all long for, world peace, an end to injustice and suffering. And how is God going to bring it about? Well, the truly shocking thing is that the Lord says it's through the birth of a child. Verse six, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now look, I don't know if you know anyone who has an impressive title. Um, there was a guy at my last church who was a brigadier, and I always felt like that was a pretty good title, brigadier, but, but no one can out-title the child described in this verse. Uh, we're meant to dwell on these titles and see that here is someone who really can deliver the world that we long for. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, look, I hope you know that's, that's not um, describing a sort of therapist with a couch. It, it's not counsellor in that sense. It's counsellor like a king, a ruler. Here is a king with the kind of wisdom that a leader needs, wisdom from above. You know, just at the moment, the politicians are trying to persuade us that they are the ones with the wisdom to sort out our nation. And I don't know, maybe they do have some wisdom, probably more than me. But even if you look at the results of our very best leaders, they achieve relatively little. But did you know that when Jesus came, people praised his wisdom? Crowds hung on his every word. His answers confounded his critics. His questions exposed their hypocrisy. Now we say that hindsight is 2020, but Jesus had foresight to match it. Never once did he make a wrong judgment. 
uh, the early 20th century author G.K. Chesterton puts it like this. If I found a key in the road and discovered it fit a particular lock in my house, I would assume most naturally that the key was made by the lockmaker. So now I found a set of teachings in a pre-modern oriental society that has proven itself to have such universal validity that it's fascinated and satisfied millions of people in every century, including the best minds and the simplest hearts, that's made itself at home in virtually every culture, that's inspired masterpieces in every field of art, that continues to grow rapidly and spread and assert itself in lands where a century ago the name of Jesus hadn't even been heard. Such teachings, which so obviously fit the locks of so many human souls in so many times and places, is it likely to be the work of a deceiver or a fool? In fact, it's more likely that they were designed by the heart maker. And still today, the wisdom of Jesus inspires the mind and captures the heart. Jesus is the wise ruler that we need in our world and in our lives. And again, Isaiah is told he will be called Mighty God. This king will possess all the power of Almighty God because he will be God himself. I remember the first time that I read Mark's gospel when I was still looking into the Christian faith and I was struck, blown away really, by the power and authority of Jesus He could calm a storm with a word, cast out evil spirits just as easily. He personally defeated death. You can see why those who knew him best didn't just say this is a good man or a great leader, but fell to their knees and worshipped him as almighty God, everlasting father. Even the best leaders only last for a while, don't they? And then they're replaced by the next person and the next person. But here is a king who will go on forever. And I love that description of him as an everlasting father. Uh, When the word father is used of God in Isaiah, it doesn't refer to genetics. It's talking about a father's tenderness and compassion. The kind of love that was demonstrated by Jesus as he healed the sick, fed the hungry and associated with the outcast. Here is a compassionate king and a prince of peace. Because, of course, Jesus was a king who came to bring a totally different kind of kingdom to the kingdoms of this world, a king who came into Jerusalem not on a tank or a war horse, but on the back of a donkey, a king who came to die on a cross. The people were in gloom because of the ways that they'd rejected God. They were going to be sent away from God and his place into exile. And here is a king who came to fix our broken relationship with God. A king who went to a cross to bring peace between God and people, and in turn between people and people. The increase of his government and peace will know no end says the Lord, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Look, do you see, if we're tempted to look for hope and for help and for answers somewhere other than God and his promises, when the crowd say what you need is plenty of money 
and a promising career, and if only, if only the right political party can get in, we'll all be okay. Look again at Jesus Christ. Read the Gospels that this promise points to and see that you have a God you can trust. I don't know if you've ever done one of those sort of three-day taster sessions at the gym. I'm guessing it's the sort of thing that we don't think about on the 1st of December, but, but might consider on the 1st of January. And um, those three years of Jesus' public ministry in the first century, those three years were, um, they were like a taster session of the better world that Jesus came to bring as he overturned death and sickness and suffering. Read the Gospels and you see a king with such wisdom, such power, such compassion that he can do this and deliver the world we all want. So you can trust him. I've said already, there will be plenty of voices this month who will, who will tell you to focus less on Jesus and more on other things. Who will tell you that there are other solutions that are really decisive to your problems. Other things that will deal with your anxieties and the gloom that we see. And I'm not saying disengage from the issues of the day. But know that only Jesus can deliver the world that we want. The better world. Trust him. Make knowing him and listening to him your priority and your joy. For only he is equipped to give us the world that we long for. Let me pray. Our Lord God, we pray that over the coming days and weeks, you would show us more of Jesus and show us those ways that we're tempted to go the way of the crowd and turn away from trusting him and turn us back to him in joy and faith in his name. Amen.